From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Office of Personnel Management should be the human capital management leader across government, according to the National Academy of Public Administration. A study Congress mandated Napa to produce finds merging OPM into the General Services Administration and moving some parts to the Office of Management and Budget wouldn't have fixed the problems the Trump administration thought it would. GovExec reports the study also finds Congress should change OPM's fee-for-service funding model. More on this later in the program. The Defense Department has a new leader for its IT modernization efforts. Danielle Metz is the new Deputy Chief Information Officer for Information Enterprise. FedScoop reports she's acting Deputy CIO now. She's also been Deputy Director of DOD's Information Network Modernization. The Department of Veterans Affairs would have to submit a list of IT projects of a certain size and report to Congress on its progress under a bipartisan bill in the Senate. Senate Veterans Affairs Chairman John Tester and Ranking Member Jerry Moran call the bill the VA IT Reform Act. Federal News Network reports the bill would also require the agency to rank and prioritize projects Congress hasn't funded yet. The Justice Department would review hate crimes against Asians and Pacific Islanders if the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act both chambers of Congress will consider becomes law. The group Stop AAPI Hate found nearly 3,800 instances of hate incidents in the last year. Dr. Errol Southers is director of the Homegrown Violent Extremism Studies at the University of Southern California. Errol, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming on. What should the Justice Department's role be in tracking hate incidents, not just against Asians and Pacific Islanders, but against all kinds of groups? This is especially prominent, of course, because of the pandemic. Well, Francis, thank you for having me. One of the challenges the Justice Department is going to have is restoring some of the civil rights, uh, if you will, actions that were rolled back in the last administration and some of the protection of vulnerable populations were reduced. So they're going to have to have what I interpret as a whole of community engagement on this effort. Um, they're going to have to leverage agencies across both state and local, uh, in addition to obviously, you know, law enforcement. But I would suggest that, as you've mentioned previously, one of the other organizations, we started tracking hate crimes largely due to COVID and stay-at-home orders back in March. And we were working with a group called A3PCON, which stands for Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council. They're doing the best job right now tracking specifically Asian American hate, American hate crimes, particularly due to COVID. So there's a lot of work to do. I also believe that they should reach out to the faith-based community. Most people in times like this who have challenges with the government or other agencies giving them information tend to rely on their faith-based leaders. And I think that'd be a good place to start as well. What is different, if anything, or and what is the same uh, in what we're seeing about the wave of violence against Asians and Pacific Islanders compared to the other areas of HVE that you examine, Errol? Well, this is clearly driven by COVID-19. Um, it's due to a lot of rhetoric that came out uh, in the last several years. Uh, it is, if you will, it is a violence that's been taking place for quite some time and been ignored. And as I talk to many of my Asian American friends, they say they're almost like the silent minority. So this is nothing new. What's coming to light is the fact that it's happening to them. And it's not just one individual or one race that's attacking them. Being, they're being attacked by many people who believe that COVID-19 is a hoax, 
who believe that there's government overreach and they stop their lives. And so that's the reason this is happening. And it's very unusual that the spike uh, has not been noticed until now that we had to have deaths for people to pay attention. But we've been tracking this for quite some time, and it has been rising every single month. Are the organizations that should be tracking this inside the federal government the same ones that should be tracking other types of extremism? Absolutely. It's, it's got to be a, across the board in terms of interagency and, and those organizations that are tracking. It's the only way we're going to have a real picture of what's going on. The other challenge we have, Francis, is that hate crimes are largely underreported. Many people don't report either the, for the fact that they don't believe anything's going to happen, there's not going to be an investigation. And then at the same time, you know, having been in law enforcement, many officers don't understand what a hate crime is. So while they may have a battery, they may have a burglary, they may have an assault, it doesn't get into that hate crime category because of the other categories they investigate. What will, you, what will you watch moving forward from the federal government's perspective? What are the expectations that uh, the, the, the broader community, the broader citizenry should have from the law enforcement organizations in Washington or the based in Washington? Well, one of the things I'm going to look for is a greater effort towards education and awareness. I think people need to be aware of what's going on. The acknowledgement by this administration that we have a problem with what's called DVEs or domestic violent extremists was a first step. I traveled last year before we had stay-at-home orders, and the most prevalent request I got to speak on was homegrown violent extremism attacking houses of worship. And who would have ever thought that that would be a challenge? And many people in those congregations were totally unaware that they were being targeted. So what I look for in the future is an education and awareness outreach effort. I also look for some prevention methods to be shared with people. We know when, it's, when we're talking about hate crimes, specifically against Asians due to COVID. They're happening in big box retail locations. They're happening in pharmacies. And so those are places that people have decided, maybe I don't want to go there by myself. Maybe I want to make sure I'm protected. I want to be very, very careful when I go in there. The government should take a part to play a role in offering prevention and strategies for personal safety as we go forward. Um, when you use the term domestic violent extremism, I go immediately to January 6th and the riot at the Capitol building. What's your takeaway from what we're learning about that, the speed with which uh, prosecutions and, and uh, charges are happening in all of that, Errol? Well, first of all, the continuing expanding scope of who was involved in that act of insurrection, info suggesting that there was planning, coordination, possibly collaboration. I, I'm, I'm impressed thus far with the number of people that are being arrested. We will have to see what happens. Most importantly, Francis, we've got arrests that's going to happen. We've got a lot of digital information regarding how we are going to identify people. But the American public is going to watch to see how this is prosecuted. And if it's not prosecuted to the full extent of the law, those people who participated in that riot will see this as an Independence Day as it was billed. It'll be a milestone for them in American history going forward. So you're not concerned about the speed with which these are happening? There's some discussion here in Washington that, um, that the, the prosecutions, the, the, the procedures are not happening quickly enough. I smile because having been in the FBI, I know one thing about the Bureau, they're patient. And so trust me that uh, I'm hopeful that everybody who participated in this way and violated the law will be identified, will be apprehended, and will be prosecuted. Uh, I always have to say to people, trust and re respect the process, and hopefully this will work out as it has in the past. Dr. Errol Southers, it's always delightful to have you on the program. Thank you, sir. 
Up next, refreshing and recreating the Office of Personnel Management. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the right way and the wrong way to fix the problems at OPM. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. A review of the Office of Personnel Management and its potential merger into the General Services Administration is complete. The National Academy of Public Administration finds transferring some OPM duties to the Office of Management and Budget and merging others into the General Services Administration wouldn't fix the problems OPM has. Robert Shea's National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton. He's former Associate Director at OMB and he is a Napa Fellow as well. Robert, thanks for coming on the program. Um, your takeaways from this is something you and I have been talking about the anticipation of for a long time. What did you see in the final product? Well, you know, you and I observed the attempt to merge GSA and OPM, and the report concludes that that in itself would not have solved OPM's shortcoming. That's sort of like saying uh, a good diet and exercise won't prevent death. Uh, it, it, by itself, that's very true. Um, nonetheless, uh, the attempt to merge those agencies was an effort to get OPM or the, the government's human capital function focused on improving the recruitment and retention and engagement of federal employees. So I, the, the, the major benefit of this report is that it, it calls out and, and seeks to improve the culture of OPM, changing it from one of compliance to ones that's folks focused on really improving the human capital management of agencies across the executive branch enterprise. Yes, and that's the impression that I got from reading this is that they interviewed lots of human capital officers and, and lots of former chief human capital officers across government because this is what these people have been telling me on this program and others for years. We need OPM to be a strategic operation to support us and not a tactical operation to watch over us. Is that what you're sensing? Is, are you hearing the same thing, reading the same thing out of this work? Absolutely. You're, you're right that the chief human capital officers really are just one entry point into OPM. If you talk to managers who really need full-time employees on the ground, doing the mission of the agency, they're the ones who complain the loudest. And to get OPM to be a partner with not only their chief human capital officers, but the managers who need to hire and hold people accountable for performance, that could really transform the human capital function of the federal government. One of the discussions that's happened over time, and in fact for a while in the Obama administration actually happened, was making the OPM director a member, an official member of the president's cabinet. John Barry attended a, a, the a President Obama's cabinet meetings for a period of time, uh, and then the uh, the OPM breach happened after he left office, and the role of the OPM director seemed to change as a result of that. Um, does that make sense in your view? Does that is that important functionally, or is that more a symbolic change if that were to happen again? I think it's more symbolic. I mean, it's an important message. If you ask agencies what their top challenges are what's preventing them from meeting their goals it's people so the ability to recruit and retain people is the number one thing 
that is either helping them or preventing them from achieving their goals. So it should be a major priority. Whether or not going to a couple of cabinet meetings makes it a sufficient priority is a big question. It's certainly a symbol, but it's important to the president and the executive branch. We, we but, um, no, please continue. But the, uh, um, you know, the real, the, the real question is whether senior leadership who are responsible for executing management improvement efforts think this is as important a priority as it should be. I teased you a bit before we went on the air because I didn't see anything here about um, measuring results in what uh, the NAPA team proposes for the Office of Personnel Management. And I teased you that we should get somebody from the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking on the program to talk about it. You were a commissioner uh, on that panel. Um, what would be the right measures to put in place to see whether these changes that NAPA proposes actually work? It's so nice of you to mention that, Francis. Um, the, the, you're right that there's not enough focus on the extent to which or OPM has or has not helped agencies improve time to hire, improved retention, improved employee engagement. There is uh, a discussion of some statutory authority that OPM has to study and share proven practices in human capital management. And if OPM took that role seriously, actually invested some time and resources in figuring out what works in these major human capital management challenges, that really could move the needle. Um, improving time to hire is great unless you hire somebody who's not well equipped to do the job. Are there that's good measures? <laughs> that's what my boss says all the time. Yeah, I get the same thing. Um, is, there a, is there data available, given the way that uh, evaluation systems work across government, is there data that's reliable to help one understand if one has hired a good employee quickly? Not reliable, not universally reliable. And, um, you know, the report concludes, and I think they're right, that uh, focusing on the collection and use of data in assessing and improving the government's workforce could be really important. Um, you know, uh, time to hire, that's an area where we've looked really closely at. But as, as far as consistent rating of employee performance, I'm not sure it's a basis on which you conclude that the hiring process actually produced the people you needed to do the job. So some focus on data quality, use of that data in managing the workforce would be really important. Robert Shea, thanks very much as always. Thanks for having me, Francis. You can find a link to the new NAPA report on OPM at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, a $7 billion windfall for the State Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the reasons why state needs the money more than DOD. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on govmatters.tv. Welcome back. The State Department will keep its hold in place on security assistance money for Ethiopia because of what it calls ethnic cleansing by the Ethiopian government. The Defense Department will send $125 million to Ukraine for security assistance with the possibility of sending $150 million more. Having both agencies doing similar jobs is one reason the system's broken, according to Alexandra Schmidt. 
policy analyst at the Center for American Progress, writing about security assistance with her colleague Max Bergman. Alex, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and, and Max have five reasons why you think the security assistance program uh, system has to change. Is there one of those five that maybe stands out to you as uh, most important, most difficult to execute, maybe easiest to address? Well, I think uh, the, the fix is the clearest reason to do it, which is what you just mentioned, that we have two departments doing very similar tasks that often are not well coordinated. So by law, the State Department is supposed to be in charge of all foreign assistance. Security assistance is foreign assistance, but under the current system, DOD has its own programs and own decision-making structure to decide who gets American weapons, training, and support that might not align with broader U.S. foreign policy considerations. And so the reason to centralize resources under state is to w eliminate that duplication and enable better policymaking that's guided by overall U.S. foreign policy concerns and not just military matters. Besides the money, what does the State Department need that it doesn't have right now, Alex? So it definitely needs more resources to effectively oversee this tool. I think there's broad consensus on both sides of the aisle going back a long time that the State Department does not have the effective resources or manpower to play a big role in foreign policy right now. It's dramatically overshadowed by the Pentagon and its budget. And so moving security assistance resources to state, a roughly $7 billion transfer, would really empower state to play more of a role in guiding that policy. But it's going to take significant reforms, which we acknowledge in the report. Uh, and it's going to need the State Department to take a hard look at what's wrong with its current decision-making policy, where there are gaps in its workforce, and where uh, we need to do significant improvements to be able to use this tool. Is it useful to understand how we got here uh, and how we got to these parallel systems, or does that not matter at this point in time? Does it just matter that we kind of right the ship? I think it does matter. Uh, it basically, if you were to sit down 10 years ago and say, this is how we want security assistance to work, you would never come up with a system that has essentially two offices and different departments doing very similar things with not a lot of easy coordination. Uh, and it's essentially a byproduct of the post 9-11 era where we had an urgent need to work with partners and their militaries overseas to counter uh, terrorist threats. But because of budget implications in 2011, the Budget Control Act, a long history, the State Department couldn't get the resources. And so the Obama administration just took the path of least resistance and gave them to the Pentagon. But now we're past the point where we need to remedy that imbalance, fix that historical inaccuracy, and centralize resources at state. You and Max write about four, re, uh, four anticipating arguments against making these changes. State Department has to be scaled up. Centralizing authorities and resources to state would simplify the process. Uh, reforming would improve policy consideration and implementation, and it wouldn't hurt the defense industry. Is there one of those that you think potentially will run into the biggest uh, challenge, probably in Congress, I would imagine? Yeah, I think it's always a challenge to talk about cutting the Defense Department's budget or uh, doing anything to take away something from our military. But what we should remember in making these reforms is that the military will still continue to implement U.S. security assistance and provide the weapons and training to our partners. What we're talking about is transferring the decision-making power and policy-making back to the State Department so that those decisions can be carefully calibrated against a range of U.S. foreign policy considerations. So I think security professionals who are used to an ever-strengthening Pentagon and a State Department that can't get its act together may have a point, but we're past the time to start addressing those imbalances uh, and fixing the system. 
Do we know for a fact, even anecdotally, whether the Defense Department ever wanted this function in the first place? I keep hearing from especially uniform leaders all the time that they want to stay focused on actual unit readiness and preparing to defend the nation, fight the next war. This doesn't sound like it's either one of those things. Yeah, it's a great point, and it's often our military leaders who say that the State Department needs more resources. One of the most quoted uh, uh, notices from Secretary Mattis was, if you give me more bullets, I need, if, I need the State Department to have more resources. Um, and so I think there's widespread consensus that uh, the military does not want to be in the business of deciding who gets what type of aid and that it's easier on them if the State Department is playing a bigger role so that they can focus on providing effective training and providing effective weapons without getting into the politics of who gets what type of aid. We have a little bit more than a minute left, Alex. Who has to do what to fulfill this vision that you lay out? Is, does, is, is this a, a Congress thing or is there something that the State Department, Defense Department can navigate on their own? Congress definitely has a role to play since they're the ones who decide what gets what money. So we are hoping to work with Congress to encourage the Pentagon appropriators to draw down their security assistance programs and for the State Department appropriators to plus up security assistance at the State Department. But the Biden administration can start playing a critical role by conducting a review of the security assistance decision-making structure, looking at where there are gaps at state and at DOD, and working collaboratively with Congress to make those budget transfers. Alex, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. You can find a link to that work at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. You get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text govmatters to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.